Good morning, good morning. You know where my Bible is. It's in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, use this passage all weekend long to set the stage for the things that we want to talk about as we consider what it is to grow in Jesus Christ and to grow closer to the Lord. Ephesians 4 and verse 15 is where I'll be reading in just a moment. As you're getting settled and as you're finding that in the Word of God, I just want to say how much I have enjoyed and how much I appreciate this incredible congregation. Brother Sean told me good things about this church, invite me to come and be part of the good things that God is doing in you and through you here. And I feel, Brother Sean, I, I feel like Bathsheba. The half has not been told. Some amazing and wonderful people here. Your shepherds are so diligent and are working so hard among you. It's delight, a delight to see the people of God at peace and to see growth spiritually and numerically, to see good attendance, to hear Bible pages turning. It has been a delight for Dean and I to be among you, and you have encouraged me. I hope that you have gotten half as much out of this meeting as I have gotten, because if you have, then you've had a really, really good weekend. I thank you, and I can't thank you enough. You come to Dallas, Texas, come and worship with us at the Westside Church in Irving. We'd love to see you and you'd feel, you'd feel right at home with a lot of people of the Lord who are just like you, diligent, careful disciples who love God. Come see us sometime in Texas. Let's read in the Word of God. This is in Ephesians chapter 4 that I am reading. In Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way in Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I'm going to complete our series this weekend by telling you a little story about a Saturday night when I was looking at my sermon outlines and getting ready to go the next day and all of a sudden my phone beeped. And I looked and there was a text message from one of the young people at Westside where I preach in labor and all it said was, are you seeing this? Scary. Are you seeing this? Scary. Maybe what bothers me the most about that story is that all of us can think of maybe a dozen different events that have happened on a Saturday or some other point in our life that the media was just covering and there was just nonstop discussion. And as we look at all of that, it's just absolutely terrifying. There have always been travails and trials in this world, but somehow it seems like we've just managed to take it up to a whole nother level. Wars and hot spots in this place, concerns about health, concerns about inflation, all kinds of political turmoil, racism boiling to the surface, rioting and looting, political division, all kinds of polarization in our world, cyberbullying, online pornography, the list goes on and on. Are you seeing this? Scary. I want to show you a passage where Paul takes a different tact. In Philippians, the fourth chapter, in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, the passage our brother read as we we're working together in worship, in Philippians 4 and verse 6, there Paul says, Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul didn't live in a world with Facebook or with elections dividing people. He did not know all the troubles of gun violence or war in Ukraine or the Gaza Strip. But Paul did live in a world where fully one-third of its citizens were legally enslaved, where racism was legal and expected. If you were not a Roman citizen, you had very few, if any, rights. Pandemic and diseases were a regular feature in life, and there were no antibiotics and there were no vaccines. Travel was difficult and dangerous. On top of that, being a Christian was risky business, and for Paul, it was getting riskier by the minute. But to the church that he loved so much, the church in Philippi, Paul didn't say, are you seeing this scary? Paul said, I have the peace of of God, which surpasses all understanding. Paul sees the world differently than we see the world. And I want us to talk about seeing the world through the eyes of Paul so that we can grow in the peace of God, so that we can have, what does he say in verse 6? contentment. Verse 7, the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus so that we were, in verse 6, not anxious about anything. Now some people will call that contentment, but I'm not content to use that term. See what I did there? Because I think contentment carries with it, I want to talk about that, some freight that derails the ideas that Paul is really going for. But I do want us to think about the peace of God guarding our hearts and minds. I want to repeatedly stress the idea of peace of mind. And I want us to focus on how Paul pulled that off in the middle of a really difficult and really terrifying world. Do you ever feel stressed? troubled, frightened? Are you covering your eyes because it's scary? Then we could use a big dose of Philippians 4, 6, and 7. We can grow in peace of mind. And maybe the way for us to begin with that is to just say a word or two about contentment. Why don't I want to talk about contentment? Well, because in 2022, the congregational reading plan for Westside was to read the epistles of Paul along with Acts and the appropriate historical notes about his life and where he was. And as I read through that and began to see Paul's life, I came to see some things about Paul that I'd never seen before. And I was doing some reading, and an evangelical writer, Melissa Kruger, had done some writing about his life, and she talked a little bit about how people think Paul had this amazing, tranquil, wonderful existence. And she talked a little bit about how people label that contentment, and that's what contentment evokes in our minds. This almost zen-like state where we check out, we're not really involved in the nitty-gritty of day-to-day -day life. No, people who are content, you know, like Paul, they've got plenty of time to lay back in the hammock. Big glass of sweet teas. They just 
think about how good life is. Or maybe contentment means I'm down at the coffee shop and I've got my Bible and my prayer journal and a latte. And We all know that if you drink coffee while you read your Bible, you're just more spiritual than people who don't. And I'm just, I'm just, thank you, brother. I'm just feeling so contented. Contentment means maybe time at the beach. Contentment means being away from everything. Contentment means life is so good and perfect. But this writer noted that wasn't Paul's life at all. And as we read through Paul's life in 2022, I came to realize that isn't how Paul's life worked in any shape, form, or fashion. The man who wrote, I have, verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guarding my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That man is not living in this slide. Let's just take a minute here and let's just rebuild Paul's biography. Can we spend a minute, let's look in the Word of God and talk about if you had followed Paul around, if you're Luke, for example, or Silas, what would you see in his day-to-day life? Got your Bible ready? Let's work in the Word of God here. Let's just start by noticing that first and foremost, Paul's life was full of worry and stress. In 2 Corinthians, I'm reading in 2 Corinthians 1, in 2 Corinthians 1 and in verse 8. In 2 Corinthians 1 and in verse 8, Paul says this to the church at Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 1 and in verse 8, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Does that sound tranquil and trouble-free? In fact, Paul actually had relationship issues and problems. In Acts 15, for example, after the amazing Jerusalem conference and the letter that's being sent to Gentile Christians to tell them you don't have to become a Jew to become a child of God, in Acts 15 and verse 36, Paul says to Barnabas, Acts 15, 36, let us return and visit the brothers in every city we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Well, that's just a great idea. We'll go see these Gentile Christians and tell them about Acts 15. And Barnabas said, good plan. Verse 37, Barnabas, though, wanted to take with them John called Mark. rut row. John Mark is the one, verse 38, Paul thought best not to take with them the one who'd withdrawn from them in Pamphylia had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. They separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. They did what? They had such a sharp disagreement they separated? Batman and Robin broke up? The Lone Ranger and Tonto went their separate ways? Are you even kidding me? This is the original missionary team. They don't get along. I'm going over here. Well, just go then because I'm going over here. That's a significant relationship issue. And notice as well, turn with me in the book of Galatians, in Galatians 1 and verse 6. Notice that a lot of the churches that Paul personally planted rejected him. In Galatians 1 and verse 6, I am astonished, he says to the Galatian brethren, 
I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. You're turning to a different gospel. What is going on there? I taught you. You know better than this. In Corinthians again, in 2 Corinthians, <clears throat> in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 10, Paul notes that there are people in Corinth who are attacking him. They are undermining his influence. What do they say? 2 Corinthians 10 verse 10. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 10. They say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Well, thanks for that. Appreciate people sniping at me behind my back. Not only does he have that going on in his life, you know this? Paul experienced real health problems. In Galatians 4, he talks to those Galatian brethren. It hurts him that they are rejecting him and the gospel he taught them because he says this in Galatians 4 and verse 13. In Galatians 4 and in verse 13 he says, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial unto you, you did not scorn or despise me. You received me as an angel of God in Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? I testify, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. We do not know the details of Paul's ailment. But it seems like he had some kind of significant eye problem. And that those Galatian brethren prayed for him and cared for him. And he says, you would have given me your very eyes if you could have. How hard is it? to be hundreds of miles from home in foreign territory and you're sick and you can't see. Paul's working that in Galatians chapter 4. On top of that, his life was just regularly difficult and hard. In 2 Corinthians 5, in 2 Corinthians 5, and I'm in 2 Corinthians a lot, this is one of the places in the New Testament where Paul just bears his heart and he just tells the Corinthians, I care so much about you. And he begins to share some of the personal details of his life. He says this is in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 2. There he says, In this tent we groan. We groan to put on our heavenly dwelling. We read that sometimes at funerals. And it fits, I get it. But Paul wasn't at a funeral. Paul was talking about his life. My life is difficult and hard, particularly because there was a lot in his life that provoked anxiety and fear of every sort. In Acts chapter 9, if you want a summary of the life of Paul, this is a pretty good place to get it. In Acts chapter 9, verse 23 says that Paul, he's converted to Christ, he's preaching the gospel, but in Acts 9, 23, many days had passed and the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. His disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. What is that like? Maybe somebody's made fun of you because you're a Christian. Maybe you tried to invite somebody to the meeting and said, I'm never going to that. I don't care about that. Don't talk to me about religion. We feel like we're really put upon. We're really persecuted. What's it like to know that people want to assassinate you? And in the middle of the night, they're stuffing you in a basket and letting you down. And you're hoping that the guys watching to murder you don't notice the basket being lowered. That's Paul's life. Paul lived with this all the time. 
you decide that you're going to binge a New Testament documentary on the life of Paul, you push play, and what you're going to see is that Paul was an up-and-coming, wealthy rabbi who was well-connected and whose career was taking off. He was a mover and shaker. In some ways, he was a rock star in Judaism. And all of that, all of it changed when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. From that point forward... He lost all of his status. He lost his job. He lost his money. He spends his life in financial need. People absolutely hate him. People literally throw rocks at him when he is preaching the gospel. He is falsely imprisoned. He is beaten. He is stoned. Some of the congregations he started repudiate him and say, you're not even a real apostle. From one specific vantage point, Paul's life was terrible. Have you ever thought about that? Paul's life stunk. He was hurting. He traveled around trying to establish churches. False teachers followed him everywhere, confusing people and teaching a false message, tearing his work down. He got shipwrecked. He got bitten by a snake. You name it, it happened to Paul. His life was terrible from one particular perspective. Now, read Philippians 4 with me again. In Philippians 4 verse 6, Paul says there, Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You read Philippians 4, 6, and 7 against the backdrop of Paul's real life. Not somebody who's got a beach condo and is all the time in a hammock just lazily watching life go by. Suddenly Philippians 4, 6, and 7 means a whole lot more doesn't it? So how did he do that? How did Paul grow in peace of mind? Let me share with you some very specific, very tangible, and very practical applications that will help us to understand how we can grow in peace of mind like Paul. That's going to begin in Ephesians 4. We need to get rid of bitterness and grudges. In Ephesians, the fourth chapter, in Ephesians chapter 4, I love what Paul says in Ephesians 4 and verse 31. In Ephesians 4 and verse 31, let all bitterness, Ephesians 4, 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let me ask you a question. What's the name of the guy on the Sanhedrin? Who fired Paul? Who is that guy? You know somewhere along the line, somebody had a conversation with Paul. We've heard about this Damascus thing. You can't work for us anymore. What are you thinking? Your career is over. Somebody sat Paul down and said, you have wrecked yourself as far as a job with the Sanhedrin goes. What's that guy's name? Answer? We don't know. We don't know. Paul never talks about that. Paul never talks about that person. He does not wear that as a badge of honor on his sleeve. Oh, look how put upon I am. 
Look how mistreated I have been. Let me tell you what so-and-so did to me. Paul never has time to talk about past mistreatment. In his wake are innumerable individuals who hate him, who were unfair to him, who did everything they could to hurt him, and Paul rarely, if ever, says anything about them. If you get anything about it, here's what you'll get. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, a rare exception is when Paul says this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. 2 Timothy 4, 14. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. That's it. Who's Alexander? What did he do? Don't know. Paul says God's going to have to take care of that. So if you want peace of mind, this is it. You check yourself right here. We all want less anxiety and stress and depression. All right, here you go. Stop obsessing about others. Stop having those conversations in your head about others. Stop talking to others about others. Stop rehearsing how you've been wrong and how you've been treated unfairly about them. Anytime we're in adversity and difficult circumstances, that gives us the chance to be the victim, to play the blame game, to become bitter. Stop. If you can get right, do it. Jesus says, go see that person even before you go to church and get it fixed. If you can't get it fixed, let it go. Put bitterness and grudges out of your life. And you particularly want to do that because you don't want to live in the past. Let me consult from Philippians again in Philippians 3. In Philippians the third chapter, in Philippians 3 and verse 12, Paul really has, Paul really has an amazing past, doesn't he? And a big piece of that is that he actually persecuted the church. And there are a couple of places where you can hear Paul's regret about that. But in the main, what's Paul talk about? In Philippians 3 verse 12, in Philippians 3 and 12, not that I've already obtained this or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Focus on the future. If your past is crummy, guess what? So was Paul's. Push forward, move forward. Quit looking over your shoulder. Stop glancing in the rearview mirror. It will destroy your peace of mind. Tell you a story about that. In 1980, in the annual NCAA March Madness basketball tournament, there's always that little school playing the big basketball royalty school, the Blue Blood. In that year's tournament, a little school named Ball State. No one's ever heard of Ball State. They took on the mighty Louisville Cardinals. Louisville's won national championships. They're always putting players in the NBA. They're the best of the best. Ball State had no chance, but... In the first half, Ball State played the best game they'd ever played. By halftime, they had a double-digit lead. 
And in the second half, they came out on fire, surged even further ahead, building that lead 13 points, 17 points. And then it all began to change. Louisville woke up and they started to make that run. Bucket after bucket after bucket, shaving the lead, cutting the lead. Finally, with 30 seconds left to play, that giant lead was cut to one point. The Ball State coach called his last time out, set his boys on the bench. He could see the fear in their eyes. He knew what they're thinking. We had our chance. We blew it. We're choking. We could have knocked off Louisville. Oh, we're letting it get away from us. We're failures. He looked at his team and he said, If before the game started, I had promised you that with 30 seconds left, you'll be one point ahead, you would have been absolutely elated. Look at the scoreboard. We're one point ahead with 30 seconds left. Stop worrying about what has happened. Let's play 30 more seconds and win this game. And they did. They let go of the past and moved into the future. Brother Sean, preaching tip, don't use that illustration in a gospel meeting in Louisville, Kentucky. Don't ask me how I know. Wow! When we move forward into the future, it frees us to have peace of mind. Listen to Paul in Romans 15. In Romans 15 and verse 24, he tells the Roman brethren, in Romans 15 and verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a little while. There is a calmness that comes over us when we're focused on what happens next instead of what just happened. Paul looks to the future. Thirdly this morning, as we look at the life of Paul, we're going to see the powerful principle that what we should do is just do the best we can where we are with what we have. One of the things that I got out of reading in the life of Paul, I know you're doing some reading in the life of Paul, I hope you've seen this principle, is he is incredibly flexible. Wherever Paul is, Paul doesn't moan about what could be, what should be, if only. Paul just does the best he is where he is. In Acts 13, he's in a synagogue. That's the most Jewish sermon you could possibly hear. It's just saturated with Old Testament references. Four chapters later, He's in Athens. And in Acts 17, he's talking to a bunch of pagan philosophers who haven't read the Old Testament and don't care to do so. That sermon has no Old Testament references in it. Instead, he quotes pagan poets and arrives at exactly the same place as the sermon did in Acts 13. Jesus Christ crucified, risen from the dead. Wherever Paul is, he just maximizes the situation to do the best he can for Jesus Christ. And you don't ever ever want to offer him an open mic. Because if you give Paul the mic in about a minute, you're going to hear about Jesus. You want to see that? In the book of Acts again in Acts, please. Read with me there in Acts chapter 21 at the end of the chapter. In Acts chapter 21. In Acts chapter 21 and verse 37. This Roman centurion, he didn't have a chance. 
He doesn't know Paul. He doesn't know who Paul is. And he doesn't know that Paul absolutely will take advantage of any situation to preach the gospel. Verse 37, Paul was being brought into the barracks. So he said to the tribune, can I say something to you? He said, do you know Greek? Look how Paul can disarm people. I didn't think you could speak Greek. I thought you were one of these Hebrews. No. I thought you were the, Hebrew, the Egyptian, verse 38, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness. Paul replied, I am a Jew, but I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city, and I beg you, permit me to speak to this people. He gave him permission, and Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And there was a great hush, and he addressed them in the Hebrew language and said, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense I now make before you. Paul maximizes the moment. What you don't read about is Paul fantasizing, wouldn't it be great if I had three sticks of dynamite and I could blow out of this prison? And then I'd stop by the Sanhedrin council and say, yeah, 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 on my way to Rome to become the first Christian emperor. No, no, absolutely not. Paul never lives in fantasy world. He is very real. His feet are on the ground. He's involved in the nitty-gritty of life, and he's doing what he can exactly where he is to glorify God. Paul just does the best he can with what he has to work with. And maybe a big part of that is Paul's determination to build great relationships. Let's try a little bit of Romans right here. In Romans 16, in Romans the 16th chapter, this is so characteristic of Paul's writings. And sometimes when we get to the end of Paul's epistles and he starts up with this, what do we do? Yeah, we just hit the fast forward button. Because we don't know these people and we can't say their names and we just skip on by. And if we do that, we're making a terrible mistake. We'll miss out on things like this, Romans 16, 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. That's so common in Paul's life. He invests himself in others, and other people come to care for him and are interested in him, and they help him and assist him. They become part of his life because he is part of their life. And so when Paul writes an epistle like this, invariably at the end he begins to say, Oh, I know who's there. And I know this person and I know this person. Tell them I said howdy. Tell them I'm coming to see them. Tell them I love them. Hey, give this person a greeting. They're valuable in the kingdom. Romans 16 fills that list up. And while you and I may not know those names, Paul did and God did. And it tells us that in the life that we live, as we try to serve Jesus, and all the, are you seeing this scary things that going on, we can't do it alone. Maybe that was one of the biggest takeaways from spending time in the life of Paul. I always kind of saw him as the lone ranger, riding from place to place, straightening out the brethren. Maybe kind of doing that Iron Man thing, invincible and impervious, just zipping around, straightening everybody out. What I came to see is that Paul's always working with others, Barnabas, Silas, Luke, always being helped by Aquila and Priscilla, always investing himself in the brothers and sisters in Christ who come to know him and love him and care about him. Does that mean nobody ever disappointed him? Absolutely not. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, as Paul writes his last epistle, 
This is the last time he will put pen to parchment. Notice what he says in verse 10. In 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. That passage drips with heartache. For Demas to stab Paul in the back, one of his trusted lieutenants, somebody who travels with Paul, who Paul cared about, for him to give up on Jesus, not just Paul, that hurts. That hurt a lot. Demas, he betrayed me. He betrayed the Lord. But Paul does not allow that to cause him to build a wall and insulate himself from everybody. I'll never get close to anyone, and that way I'll never hurt again. No, in the very place that we're reading, what does he say to Timothy? Four times. 2 Timothy 4 verse 9, Do your best to come and see me. In verse 11, if you wonder how that story with Mark turned out, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. In verse 13, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and the books and the parchments. And then finally, one of the last things Paul ever writes. Do your best to come see me before winter. I need you, Timothy. I need you here. Come see me. Paul has built deep relationships. He counts on them to get him through the difficulties of his difficult life. And I wonder sometimes if we're doing the same. It's so much easier for us. Paul writes letters which may or may not be delivered. The Roman mail system, wow, this was expensive to do. And there was always uncertainty if it would ever arrive. And it took a long time. You and I, we can text somebody. Great to see you today in church. We can Facebook message somebody. Appreciate that post that you put up. That really helped me. We can... Call somebody and talk to them. Does anybody do that anymore? We can stick in our hand in the foyer here in a few minutes and share a smile and say, I'm so glad to see you. Are you building relationships? Paul knew that we're not getting through this difficult life by ourselves. We need people. Paul needed people. You need people, I need people, build those relationships and count upon them. And then finally, of course, for Paul, he works from a deep faith in the Lord that God is at work and that with God all things will come out right. In fact, he really says this in Philippians 4, if you'll join our text there again. In Philippians 4 and in verse 11, he assures the Philippian brethren that he cares so much for. In Philippians 4 and verse 11, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. There's that word. But now we know what it didn't mean in Paul's life, don't we? And Paul wants the Philippians to know that despite all the difficulties he's experiencing, I'm okay, because I know, verse 12, how to be brought low, I know how to abound. In every circumstance, in any circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him 
who strengthens me. That is, isn't it, the peace of God that he talks about in verse 7. He's talking about that basic conviction that God is at work, that God is in control, that God will bring him through, and that whatever happens will advance the cause of the kingdom of God. And that's what Paul is all about. He operates in the strength of verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I'm pretty sure that Paul didn't write that so that a baseball team could write that on their sweatbands. Or so a basketball player would write that on his sneakers. And Paul absolutely didn't mean that if you're a Christian you can do anything. You can't fly. Don't try it. It'll hurt. What Paul does mean is I can face all the mess. Brother Sean, I'm still gesturing with the wrong hand. Paul means I can face all the troubles of life in the power of God because God is at work in me. I was in a doctor's office and I saw this ad on the wall. Nothing can bring you peace but yourself. The quotation from Ralph Waldo Emerson. And I've thought about that a lot and I think Paul would tell Ralph Waldo Emerson, you're dead wrong. Human-oriented solutions like meditation or yoga or relaxation techniques cannot and do not fill your life with purpose, with meaning, with the conviction that what I'm doing counts and will carry forward into eternity. And especially, Paul would say, all sorts of human-centered techniques where you try to bring peace to yourself will never, ever deal with, are you seeing this? Scary. Only faith in God gives us the ability to do that, just that. Only when we're serving the Lord do we have that kind of peace of mind. Only in Christ can we say, I'm not anxious about anything. I've prayed about it. I've made supplication with thanksgiving. God knows about it. God will take care of it. And let's tell the truth. Sometimes when we're texting each other, are you seeing this scary? Sometimes when we're all rumpled up with anxiety, what we've forgotten is it's not just us who are seeing this. The Lord sees it too. And we need to know He holds His people in the palm of His hand. And just as Paul went through difficulties, we can go through difficulties as well and come out right because we trust in our great God. That is what gave Paul incredible peace of mind. But he used that peace of mind to advance the kingdom of God. So I would say to you this morning, and have said to you as many times as I possibly could, Paul's life just wasn't that great. And I hope you remember that as you read in the letters and life of Paul. But Paul didn't do yoga, and he didn't live at the beach or head out to the mountains. He didn't withdraw or check out. He practiced discipleship. 
He lived for the Lord Jesus Christ. He trusted in God to work in his life. Has he brought all of that together despite a life that was in many ways incredibly hard? Paul knew the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. It guarded his heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And when we mirror in our lives the life of Paul as he mirrors Christ's life, you and I can grow in peace of mind. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, we are so thankful for the life of your servant Paul and for the candor of Scripture to depict his life honestly and to tell us of the trials and adversities that he faced in faith. We ask, Father, that you would bless us to be more like your servant as he duplicated in his life the life of Christ. We ask, Father, for a blessing of this peace that comes from you to guard our hearts and minds. Father, sometimes we are anxious. Sometimes we are distressed. Sometimes we are troubled by the things we see around us. Father, we ask that you will help us not to be anxious, but instead will glorify you as we trust your work in our lives. Father, I pray for the Monte Vista Church. I pray for her shepherds, her deacons, and every member. I pray that your word preached this weekend will grow all of us closer to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, and amen. You've listened so carefully, I appreciate you more than I can possibly say. Let's grab a songbook, and one more time, let's see if there might be someone here who is ready to follow Christ. We don't follow Christ just to have peace of mind. But it is a wonderful fringe benefit, isn't it? We follow Christ because He's the Son of God, because He is King of kings and Lord of lords, because we give Him the allegiance of our heart, because He is worthy of that. And we begin that following in baptism to wash away our sins, Acts 2 and 38. Or if you are a Christian and you're not serving the Lord, yeah, that's why you don't have peace of mind, isn't it? That's what's troubling you, brother. That's why you can't pillow your head, sister. Whatever we can do to help you, Start following Jesus or follow Jesus in a better and more loyal way. We would love to assist you to walk with Christ and grow deeper in your relationship with Him. Make your way right down front while we stand, while we sing. <laughs>